Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's the Autosport Podcast. We dissect a dramatic Chinese Grand Prix and get excited about the 2018 driver market. Two races into the 2017 Formula 1 season and the score between Sebastian Vettel and Lewis Hamilton is now one all. But even though Lewis Hamilton won the Chinese Grand Prix by just over six seconds, we've now had a little more evidence that Mercedes and Ferrari really might be evenly matched enough to produce a classic world championship fight. My name is Ed Straw, the editor-in-chief of Autosport. Joining me today first is Lawrence Barreto, one of our full-time Formula 1 correspondents. After a few years of it being an all-silver fight, you must be enjoying having a Mercedes v Ferrari battle to write about. Oh, definitely. There's only so many times you can write a report that says Lewis Hamilton or Nico Rosberg has won a Grand Prix. So it's, uh, it, was about, it, it was about 60, wasn't it? <laughs> it just felt... You had to come up with different adjectives and different verbs to describe the same thing. So I'm delighted that... Uh, we've that is what the thesaurus is for, Lauren. <laughs> the writer's job summed up. You have to come up with all these <laughs> nouns and verbs. Hemingway uh, used to think he'd done a cracking job if he'd put out 450 words in a day. I do 450 words in 10, 15 minutes. Well, that's the difference between you and Hemingway, isn't it? When's <laughs> your Nobel Prize for literature coming, Lawrence? It's I'll in the be post. waiting a long time, I think. <laughs> 
That other voice you've heard, I'm sure some of you will recognise it, is F1 Racing Executive Editor Stuart Codling, who's becoming something of a cult hero on the Autosport podcast for his, not only not only his insight, but also his interesting digressions. Now, I hear that your latest antics are two-wheeled and time trial related. Yeah, I'm going to have to slide into McLaren press release mode here, because although my time in the first time trial of the season last Saturday was a slightly underwhelming by many measures... 26 minutes, three seconds. Uh, I'd take that for the first uh, race of the season. And, of course, there's plenty of development to come in aerodynamics. Dare I say it, a little weight to come off the chassis and uh, probably a little bit of development to come from the engine as well, cycling being an engine formula. At least you have reliability. You made it to the end. Yeah, I made it to the end. Uh, I'd say the the deployment in a straight line was uh, starting to fade and splutter a bit. But, uh, yeah, we got there. Well, I'm sure you were talking up your driver's incredible and your best time trial ever and various other yeah, Alonso-esque if, comments. If, if, if I'd had radio, I'd be pointing out that it was uh, my magnificence and it was the engine that was dragging me down. Anyway, back on four wheels, in the world of Grand Prix racing, the Chinese GP really was a fascinating race. Lawrence, was it a bit frustrating not to be able to see the Hamilton-Vettel battle play out properly up front? In one way, you could have said yes if, if the race hadn't really peaked or picked up as it turned out to do but i really enjoyed the grand prix and it was a great race wasn't it there was stuff going on most of the time a few little quiet zones and i think a lot of people have been saying how boring f1 has been over the last few years and i know that it's still lewis hamilton who's winning the grand prix but it's what actually happened and how he got to that point which was exciting i think there was enough in that race that we got we got 18 races to go to we can see lewis and sebastian battle it out i thought this was a good race for the second one of the season people have been complaining that Grand Prix racing's boring and not as good as it used to be since Nuvolari was in nappies, though, haven't they? Exactly. It's always a standard thing. You, you see this when you look back through old issues of autosport, motorsport, other publications. You know, in the 70s, people saying, well, it was much better in the 50s. In the 50s, people writing, well, it was much better pre-war. Yes, I, I can't abide all these cars with sponsorship on. Exactly, exactly. And, and saying that all this Mercedes and auto union business is, is all very well, but it's much better when Dusenberg were winning the French Grand Prix and that kind of thing. <laughs> anyway, Whatever that- happened to ride on mechanics? <laughs> we, we've managed to go back about 100 years there. So moving back into the present... Obviously, the way the race played out, Hamilton was up front on his own pretty much the whole way through. The race hinged on this decision of Sebastian Vettel to pit under the virtual safety car early on. He was the only one of the of the top six to make that stop to change from Inters to Slicks, although the rest of the field also came in. So we had this great setup when the race restarted after the virtual safety car of Vettel in sixth place. And the question of, right, well, when do the cars ahead of him stop? Can he jump Hamilton and gain trap position with a few reasonable laps on slicks while Hamilton has to change onto the, the slicks later? So it, it was interestingly poised. But then after Giovinazzi crashed, obviously, there was another safety car. They all pitted and all Vettel had done was sacrifice trap position without any gain. Now, I think that was a perfectly reasonable strategy from Ferrari and Vettel. Well, he, he wasn't to know and it couldn't have been anticipated that the two Sabers would ping it off the road at more or less the same spot and one of them would end up in the wall. That was a tricky one because you were watching the replay, weren't you, on board with Ericsson. You think, well, how's he going to turn that into the crash he's having? Yeah. And then of course you realise that Giovinazzi goes past and, and he goes off. But... I, I wonder if Giovinazzi was watching that unfold ahead of him and just kind of uh, his brain slipped out of gear or something because they, they both had sort of slightly similar accidents. Could have been a bit of a distraction, I guess, but these things happen in, in tricky conditions. I guess sometimes you do watch the driver in front, don't you, for the breaking point. I guess if he just saw that Marcus went off, he might have followed him off, and then by the time it was too late. If nothing else, it was just a bit distracting. That can always knock you out of your your comfort zone, shall we say. So uh, everybody's happy with that decision that Ferrari made? To me, it seems to be the logical move. I was surprised to see 
more of them didn't change at that point. Well, I think Ferrari have been given a hard time in recent years for not or not making good strategic decisions. I think that was one was worth doing. No, absolutely, and it's fair some of the criticism they had, but that that seemed logical to me because everybody from seventh back came in with the exception of Science, who'd already started on slicks. So, yeah, it, it was one of those things where it, it was quite early, but then again, we we had had one driver start the race on slicks, so and then go all... and then go off instantly. <laughs> yeah, so the, the, the there was a question of whether it was too early, and, and obviously the other people decided it was. And Ferrari decided it wasn't, and that's the sort of judgment call you make. And obviously, the, the nearer the front you are, and the more track position you sacrifice, the more you look like a fool when it doesn't come off. This time, it, it was a reasonable gamble, like you say. How do we think it would have played out had Giovinazzi not crashed? Had we just had green flag racing? Obviously, it wouldn't have been long before the top five drivers had to come in for slicks. Presumably, under well, in this scenario, it would have been under green flag conditions. So it would all been about the gap of Vettel up to Hamilton and there's a reasonable chance that he would have gained track position surely it's likely and also you have to sort of look at the way it panned out it, it, it's, it's, it's a shame because we can't really measure the Mercedes performance as uh, accurately as we'd like because for quite a long time in that race Lewis wasn't really put under much pressure so there, there was that point during the late teens of, of the race where it kind of looked like they might be able to go to the end on the same set of tyres and the order looked quite set and he looked very, very in control of things up front while Vettel was bottled up behind uh, the Red Bulls and his own teammate. But then Vettel got very racy, very impressively and began to put him under a bit of pressure. But even then, he was sort of quite a way ahead. So I'm, I'm not sure we kind of saw everything Mercedes had uh, in terms of pace. I suspect it would have been a question of track position, wouldn't it? Had Vettel gained track position through that virtual safety car and the subsequent green flag period that didn't happen because of Giovinazzi, I suspect he'd have been able to stay there, assuming the second pit stop phase was executed correctly by everyone. No, I'd agree. I think so. And the thing with uh, the way that this result ended up is with Lewis out in front and as you said the gap gap never got smaller was it the final stint Seb was catching him the final stint Vettel over the last 19 laps on average he was 0.170 seconds faster with the caveat that Hamilton had a pretty big gap in his pocket so I'm pretty sure Hamilton would have left something on the table but what it looked like to me is there were two cars with similar race performance there yeah, there's still a few unknowns left in this season, which is uh, pretty good from our point of view as we're looking forward to another race this weekend. That we still there's still a lot we don't know. That they are sort of known unknowns, as Rumsfeld might have put it. <laughs> yeah, so we can get into we could get into what the unknown unknowns are, but that would be pure speculation. Now, Ben Anderson's Grand Prix report. He's our Grand Prix editor. It was headlined how Ferrari's other drivers cost Vettel a victory shot. So obviously, first we had the Giovinazzi crash, the Ferrari Junior in the Sauber, which wiped out the potential advantage of the virtual safety car gamble. Although, I should add, it's not a foregone conclusion that Vettel would have been able to lap quickly enough in slicks, possibly losing tyre temperature on a still damp track. So that that would have been an interesting one. I think you can say with absolute confidence, but I'd probably lean towards the fact he might, I think he might well have done, because I don't think Hamilton would have gone that that much longer. He didn't suggest he had much life left in, in the intermediates. So we then had this situation with Ricardo Verstappen, Raikkonen, Vettel, together running second through to fifth. Verstappen got past Ricardo, so then had Verstappen, Ricardo, Raikkonen and Vettel, and Vettel lost about five and a half seconds. So this was pretty costly, and to me it seems that was an area where maybe Ferrari should have intervened and say, 
Kimmy, can you let him go and just have a go at the Red Bulls? You don't know if they might have been actually saying that because we don't hear all the communications. And it is interesting, that little battle, because uh, I, I was just thinking about going to make a cup of tea and I kind of thought the, the order at the front was was set and I thought, Seb's not going to pass Raikkonen here, is he? He's just going to sit behind him and, and pretty soon he's going to start whining over the radio. And lo and behold, he barges past him and it's a brilliant overtake. Raikkonen just sort of totally caught napping. And, and it was a lovely example of what Martin Brundle now calls organic overtaking. No DRS required. China's been one of those circuits where we've seen that a bit. Obviously a few years ago, when Hamilton won by passing Vettel. Obviously Vettel was stealing himself near the end of the race for the attack into the hairpin at the end of the DRS zone. And Hamilton thought, actually, I'm going to mug you before that when you're not really expecting it. But we did see some great overtaking from Vettel. Obviously, he passed Raikkonen on lap 20. That was a dive up the inside of turn six that did seem to take Raikkonen by surprise. Only took him two laps to get past Ricardo. And I guess this is the key question, isn't it? The fact that Raikkonen couldn't seem to attack Ricardo properly, whereas Vettel only took two laps to make his pass at the same place, albeit he tacked around the outside of turn six and they had a little wheel-banging moment on the on the run out of it, Vettel and Ricardo. Was, was Raikkonen really costing Vettel that much? Do you think that was a, a poor strategic move from Ferrari to, to allow it to happen? Well, it depends what Ferrari's approach wants to be. Do they want to let their drivers race or do they want to win this title and go back to the days when they, they put all their backing behind Schumacher and, you know, to pick one drive to do it. At the moment, it seems a little bit early to be telling new drivers to, to move over. I think well, the second race of the season it seems but, a little bit unfair. But though, it's more about it? race situation because I would argue that if in the next race the situation's reversed and Raikkonen's clearly quicker and behind Vettel, that's when you release Raikkonen because it, it swings and roundabouts rather than saying whatever happens, one driver is let past. Let's say he let him pass straight away at the restart and then Vettel passed Ricardo and Verstappen in short order, it would have been a very different race at the front. So Ferrari potentially had a result there that could have been stronger. So that, that's that's the question, isn't it? Rather than just favouring a driver, it's more whichever one's quicker. And we've seen teams like Red Bull have done little swaps at times when one driver or the other's cr- uh, other is quicker. But then you've also got to make a decision, how long do you give Kimi to try and get past? Because you've still got to give him a chance. He's, yeah, he's, he's got track position <clears throat> at that point. And... It, I guess it's all going in super fast mode for them. So it, time goes on, and they just wanted to, you know, give him enough time to do it. I think, I think, I think it was fine. Half, five and a half seconds, fine. That might have made the difference here. But I think, I think what they did there and not getting involved was was the right thing to do. I'd have been on the team radio saying, um, "Kimmy, Sebastian is faster than you." And if he gave me any lip back, I'd just say, "Talk to the hand," because the face ain't listening anymore. That's the kind of pit-to-car radio we don't hear enough of. I think we need a bit more of... Uh... We, we, we basically need Patrick Head back, don't we? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think that would cause all manner of uh, interesting scenarios. That'd be brilliant. Whatever it is that you do, do it better. <laughs> <laughs> Driving fast and overtaking in this case. Yeah. Vettel's move on Ricardo, we briefly mentioned, was a, was a really uh, spectacular moment as well. Uh, Ricardo was wise to the fact that he may have a punt up the inside into turn six, I guess. He will either have seen what happened in his mirrors or have been told by the team, that's where Vettel did it, watch out for it. And obviously he managed to kind of contest the corner and then they just had this little rub, which they both seemed to quite enjoy. That That's, I think, a moment of the race that almost wasn't talked about enough. So it's great to see two drivers leaning on each other. I think Vettel said elbows out and Ricardo said he'd be lying if he if he said it wasn't deliberate in terms of he was sort of squeezing Vettel and Vettel was squeezing a bit. So Nice and clean, wasn't it? Puff of smoke tyre decals gone on the side you couldn't see the Pirelli logos anymore yeah I, I, I really enjoyed that it's two drivers who clearly have a bit of respect for each other but 
also not giving each other any course. And then, of course, we saw the move on uh, on Verstappen, which was only six laps later. But that was Vettel obviously taking advantage of Verstappen having a big, big lock-up and Verstappen was in the pits a, a couple of laps later. But do you remember the days when everyone used to say Vettel couldn't overtake? Yeah, exactly. He could only lead, lead a race from the front, etc., etc. He's He's quietly putting a few myths to bed this year, really. I think he always could overtake. It's just that quite often with Red Bull, he was up front. And he didn't have, he to. didn't have to, yeah. Exactly. exactly. But remember, we saw that great pass at Monza on Alonso. And he took a bite of the grass coming out of the Curva Grande. You know, that was that was a brilliant overtake. I think people do respect Vettel a bit more maybe than they used to. It's amazing what a bit of time as an underdog does for, for a driver's reputation when people realise actually they're, they're pretty good. Yeah. Sadly, this comes too late to save the German Grand Prix, but uh, hey-ho. Well, there we go. That's a that's another story. Although that that may be uh, maybe returning in the future, hopefully. So once Vettel was in clear air, he chipped away a little bit. We had the pit stop phases. Verstappen triggered this period of the second stops. You know, there was a bit of talk that the Mercedes drivers might go to the end. I guess the Ferrari drivers were thinking they could go to the end because they were also on softs, whereas the two Red Bulls had taken super softs. So once Vettel was through, Hamilton said he was quite chilled up to this point. And when Vettel was through, he thought, okay, this has woken up a bit into a, a little bit more of a race. I guess he didn't. Hamilton never really felt threatened by the Red Bulls, just in terms of the perform. I guess the performance of the two cars, uh, and he knows obviously from the from Australia how hard or what a threat Vettel is. So yeah, I, I'm not surprised that he didn't feel so chilled uh, once he knew Sebastian was behind yeah. him. I'm very glad that it didn't turn out to be one of those races where you could go to the end because it has been a very delicate balance, hasn't it, with the tires that the drivers wanted a tire that they could lean on uh, without destroying it. But at the end, at the same time, you don't want the, uh, to go back to the Bridgestone days of probably, arguably, not even needing to stop if you didn't uh, have to. And and this this race seems to have taken that quite delicate balance and and, and pushed on. And we, we've seen drivers able to lean on the tyres, but at the same time, they haven't been able to go all the way to the end. It's nice to have a little bit of uncertainty as well. Obviously, they're unfamiliar with the tyres. So the range is a little bit of, a, of an unknown. We saw that in Australia that had an impact, obviously, on Hamilton's decision to, as to when he pitted. It was quite cold in, in China, so that created some slightly unusual conditions with whether you're able to get the tyres switched on, etc. And that can impact the way the, the tyres work. So we've just got to hope this this is able yeah. to continue. I, I do have a feeling... It's going to become gonna, a known and not a known I, unknown, isn't I th- it? I think the known known is going to be that we're going to see quite a lot of one-stop races. But you never know. It's still, still in that learning period. Now, talking of Vettel's overtaking, obviously there was a lot of talk before this race, certainly on this podcast, I'm not sure it was so much talked about elsewhere, about the impact the DRS would have in Australia. The straights aren't really long enough for them to have a big impact. Obviously, we've got this 1.2 kilometre back straight on the run up to the hairpin, where you can use DRS and also on on the start-finish straight. And we weren't seeing drive-by passes. We weren't actually seeing a monstrous amount of passes at the hairpin, as you can see from the fact that Vettel had to make his passes at turn six on Ricardo and on Raikkonen. Now, that seems to me to be quite a good balance. That's why I really like this race. I thought it was quality over quantity. Yeah, we didn't have that much overtaking, but then we could watch NASCAR if we want lots of overtaking. I think here, drivers really had to work hard um, to make a pass stick, and they look like the passes look good. They, you know, And that's what I think people want to see. That's going to get people interested again, isn't it, I think? Yeah, there was an edge to it. When, when you have DRS not acting as an overtaking tool in itself but as a kind of enabler where it which was the objective yeah to contest not just to drive by yeah you can you can basically you rope your opponent in 
and and lasso them and, and and draw closer to them and then you just have to brazen it out somewhere on the track and that's that's what we saw it wasn't happening necessarily at the end of the straight at that hairpin it was going on elsewhere after they'd got into range and it wasn't just Vettel yeah we saw quite a lot of overtaking here and there which um you know, it, it worked for me I was very very pleased by the the quality again it'll be interesting to see how it pans out over a larger sample set of races Bahrain coming up next is a place where you can pass reasonably. Russia has been a bit hit and miss, should we say. Barcelona has always been fairly poor for overtaking Monaco. Once we get into six sort of six races into the season, we'll have had a bit of a of a range to see whether it's the the right balance. But all these things feed in the pace of the cars, the tires, the DRS, the track configuration, and the balance feels like it's not too bad at the moment. Yeah, no, I'd agree. I mean, like you said, early days, we've had Australia, which isn't a representative circuit, and China generally overtaking has been possible. So it's it's just too early to say, isn't it, I think? The key is to not get suckered by these outlier races where overtaking is tricky and to enjoy it while while you have it. Circuits like China. Bahrain's a good one. And and there are other ones. Once we get over the sort of the little the May month of May hump of Barcelona and Monaco, where it's tricky to overtake for slightly different reasons, we, we then go to other places where overtaking is more likely again in, in the more organic fashion. So uh, we'll, I, think, I think we'll just have to sort of tighten our seatbelts for the inevitable complaints that will uh, spring up uh, over the next month and, uh, and hope that the summer brings better. But you see, I think if we have a title battle to talk about, there'll be fewer complaints because people just won't be searching for something to complain about. They'll have uh, something, you know, something to hold on to. So. Nice, clean title battle as well. And uh, for now, because for, for now they're talking about uh, respecting each other greatly, it can't be long before someone does something that causes that to go out, out the pram, surely. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Codders. It's very easy to be matey when it's early days in the championship fight, but when the stakes get higher, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how those two react because we haven't properly seen them have a full-on title battle. Yes, they were both contenders going down to the last round in 2010, but a proper Vettel-Hamilton rivalry is something that's that's looking pretty exciting. And that's what it's looking like this year. Only two races, lots of caveats there. But it feels like this is absolutely setting up to be a Hamilton versus Vettel two-piece, isn't it, Lawrence? The other thing is, towards the end of last year, when things weren't going right, Sebastian was throwing his toys out the pram. Lewis is famous for throwing his toys out the pram. So I think when things go together, I think it could be a really explosive kind of rivalry. Um, things I've, are... I've just got this vision of them lobbing toys at each other. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be like some sort of meltdown in a branch of Toys R Us, isn't it? <laughs> Maybe something like Mario Kart. They can get the red shell, green shell. Stop playing that. No, oh, that, that would be that, great. That would spice up the show, yeah. Bananas. Well, as, as we know, Ross Braun is famous for his pit wall consumption of bananas, so he'd probably be able to get behind the idea of lobbing a banana skin onto the track. <laughs> Certainly creates a, a curveball, so to speak. I think I'm potentially mixing my metaphors. You are mixing your metaphors. <laughs> Where, how are you going to introduce that weird bullet thing that causes an oil splat to uh, appear on the screen? <laughs> and that thing that... Obviously, you can shrink all your rivals and, and run them over. And you can run them over, flat them, yeah. Forget all the other ideas. Mario Kart's the uh, the, the model. Now, outside of the top two, obviously, we had Kimi Raikkonen, we've mentioned a little bit, in the second Ferrari, Valtteri Bottas in the Mercedes. Now, on Raikkonen, Ferrari have been fairly positive about Raikkonen over the past few years. Obviously, since he went back in 2014, it's been a tricky time for him. He hasn't matched the results of his teammates. Podiums have been relatively rare. Now, Sergio Marchioni, the Ferrari chairman, did, on his way out of the paddock, confirm that he'd spoken to team principal Maurizio Arrivabene about Raikkonen's performance. Uh, he said, 
I talked about this with Maurizio. Maybe they should sit around a table and he should talk to him. Today, he seemed to be busy with other stuff. Vettel was more aggressive. That's quite interesting. I wouldn't necessarily say the Chinese Grand Prix was that terrible from Raikkonen. I don't think it was a brilliant race, but... Just underwhelming. Yeah, I think it it was all right, but it does seem interesting. There's a little bit of pressure building there on Raikkonen. Do we think that's fair? I personally don't think it is fair. We're only in the second race of the season, uh, and I think... The fact that Sebastian's having such a good start, it's only made Kimi look worse than perhaps he potentially is. Maurizio spent a lot of time last year putting his arm around Kimi's shoulder, trying to protect him, while uh, Sergio Marcioni was putting pressure on Sebastian and saying he wasn't doing such a good job. So, you know, it's just, they're two very different approaches. Uh, Now Sergio's turned his attention to Kimi. It'll just be interesting to see how that pans out i can't imagine kimmy's going to take it too well that, well, that approach the good cop bad cop treatment maybe sometimes someone does need to go and slam a desk maybe they should send toto wolf around he's good at banging tables <laughs> sort of his, his new skills i find raikkonen difficult he has, has a lot of ability but for me it's not just two races it's going back to him going back to ferrari in 2014 so he's had 14 15 16 and now the start of 17 yes I think at times over the second half of 15, in qualifying, maybe more so than the races, his performance relative to Vettel was pretty decent. But I've still not seen the kind of consistent level that I'd expect to see a driver of that rank, a world champion, ultimately. That's what I want to see from a driver like Raikkonen. Again, I think maybe it was a little bit exaggerated in this race. Obviously, he had the problem with not being in the correct engine setting in that part of the race when he couldn't get past Ricardo. It's his own fault. It does appear to have been his fault and related to not switching back to the the dry uh, the dry condition settings that would give him that maximum punch off the the corner of the the long right hander that leads onto the onto the back straight but it's not Raikkonen's worst race and it was it was all right but I, I can see why Ferrari could get frustrated with him particularly if you have a scenario where you need your second drivers you know if there's a day where Ferrari's strong and has an advantage you need a one two with Hamilton third and I think even though Bottas has been maybe a little bit patchy in his first two races you'd expect Bottas to be able to back up Hamilton at least in one two, So that's where it'll become a bit of a concern. You mentioned uh, that you've been slightly disappointed with Kimi since 2014, but Ferrari should know what they've signed. And so you could, there's only so, uh, you know, so annoyed that they can be with Kimi because they know, they know exactly what he's capable of. Well, that's of. true. They did pay him an awful lot of money not to drive for, for them in 2010. He's so. done well out of them, hasn't he? <laughs> being, paid, well, yeah. being paid to go and then paid to come back again. Yeah, no, you, you are right though. I think that's, that's, valid that Ferrari did know what they were getting into but it's interesting when the pressure really really starts to be applied when you're battling for constructors and drivers championship it'll be interesting to see whether that's what they say I I don't take what Marcioni said too seriously because you're quite right Lawrence that he's thrown a few little grenades in there now and then and ultimately I'm not so worried about that it's more interesting to see what the perception is in the team and whether they think he's actually able to to deliver the support to battle that they need you never know He's actually always gone pretty well at Bahrain, Raikkonen, and that's one of his circuits you'd expect him to go strongly at, whatever happens. So it could be that this weekend he picks up and he delivers a good result. I suppose the other question you have to ask yourself, and it's probably a question that the powers that be at Ferrari have asked themselves, which is um, how can we improve on this situation? Uh, if we were to fire Kimi and, in theory, get a faster driver, in to replace him, a more competitive driver, what effect would that have in terms of destabilising our highly paid lead driver? And, and would it actually deliver better results 
in terms of the constructors championship and the drivers championship and the answer to that is well you know not necessarily who who would you actually who out there would you actually put in that seat who's available would you put alonso in you know great driver but you've just parted company with him um is there, is there anyone else who's a mega that um, was available and wouldn't tread on vettel's toes it's a tight little window to park yourself in if you like and that you want a driver who's good enough to be to be there but not quite strong enough to be a challenge you know someone like carlos Sainz jr is coming on well he might well be available next year there's a few drivers out there who could be of interest further back ultimately it's going to be down to what happens over the next six seven eight races we'll start to give a little bit of a shape to the to the season for Raikkonen. i think he needs to be there kind of supporting and in behind vettel in a way that maybe hasn't been yet but obviously there's also the question of mercedes with bottas it's been a bit of a difficult start to him i had fairly high expectations for bottas However, Australia was was fine. It was fine. He wasn't that happy with it. China could have been fine, but looping the car under the safety car, warming your tyres, is not a good thing to do. He described it as a stupid mistake. He called it amateur, and he reckoned he could have been second without it. But that's that's not a great weekend from Bottas. So there's there's also question marks there. Although possibly with the fact that he's new into the team, etc., you can make a few more allowances. But from my perspective how the first four or so races go is pretty important in terms of the die being cast for what his role is there and how they perceive him within the team and not getting into a downward spiral. Goes to show the importance of the package or the driver as a package, doesn't it? Because it's one thing to be capable of turning a quick lap and we know Bottas is quick, but you also have to be able to do it lap after lap and not make silly mistakes and you, you have to be on it pretty much all the time. And that's what you get when you employ Lewis Hamilton. You have someone who, you know, nine times out of ten delivers his best. He has, you know, these odd moments where he kind of drifts off. You get the odd race where he's not quite on it. But those are more obvious for from to us looking from the outside in because they happen, because they are conspicuous by their unusual nature. Most of the time he is uh, at ten tenths and absolutely on it. And I guess so far it doesn't look like Bottas is off that level or at least on the same level uh, as Lewis at the moment. But that doesn't mean that on occasion he can't challenge Lewis. He seems to think, you know, he's perfectly capable of doing it. Uh, Toto seems to think he's, you know, he's quick as well. Um, Apart from that silly mistake, I don't think this weekend was that bad for him. No, the Um, weekend was, was fine. And I guess, yeah, fine isn't brilliant, is it, if you're racing for the world champion? But that's, you know, it's, it wasn't terrible. So I, th- no, I just no. think that, you know, give him a few more races to settle in. As long as this doesn't hit him too hard and he can learn to take, you know, bad bad, bad scenarios well, then, you know, I think we should give him a little bit more time. That's the big question, isn't it? He's got some time, but it just needs to avoid putting the pressure on himself. I know he said when he was interviewed by Jonathan Noble earlier in the year before testing started, he said... Yes, I want to make a good start, but if things don't start brilliantly, I'm not going to be putting massive amounts of pressure on myself because he knows that that's not the way to do things. Of course, as I think, Cod, as you've said in the past, it's all well and good to say that when you're sat down in a nice comfy room, drinking a cup of tea, doing a doing a relaxed interview uh, pre-season. It's a little bit different when there's that desperation or you're heading down to the first corner. So what, what I'd hope Bottas does is he is able to keep a cool head and not feel he has to kind of force the issue just let his ability come through because he is he is a very good driver but scenarios like this have proved a bit too much often mentally rather than just in terms of pure talent if you want to use that and talents are a dangerous shorthand I think when you're talking about people in sport 
but I think that's the key thing. If he can just go about his business, do what he does, he should kind of come out of this and and do a decent job. But if he's trying to force the issue, that's when it's going to go wrong. Now we did mention uh, Carlos Sainz as well. Obviously, he was he was best of the rest outside the big three teams. He was the only one outside Red Bull, Mercedes, and Ferrari not to be lapped. He took that big gamble to start on slicks, which uh, he said after the race, everybody in the team thought he was mad doing that, and it did go a little bit wrong at the start when he went off. And I think he uh, had a little little brush of the wall, but obviously it did turn out to be a good decision, and and he drove another really strong race it's not surprising because we know how good science is last season he came on really well basically once Verstappen was out of the team he seemed to really come to the fore so so how impressed are we with are we with science I'm really impressed with science I think that was his fourth point scoring finish in the last six races including um because the back end of Which last you consider year we had an old engine at the back end of last year exactly and he he seems to be um outperforming Daniel Kvyat as well you know that's the bare minimum that he's got to achieve this year Science has always said that he's quick in wet conditions or changeable conditions. It's one thing to say it, it's another to actually consistently do it. And he seems to have always, you know, when this these situations have presented themselves, he seemed to have done it. It didn't look so hot early on when, he'd, when he had that spin, then he tried to get back onto the track, hit the barrier, then came back on it. It, it was looking a bit ropey at that <laughs> yeah. point. Um, but then he was certain faster slaps. He kind of, he doesn't seem to let things phase him. That's what I think is quite interesting. It, it sort of fits into the category of being a quietly brilliant race, that, because... The the only time you really saw him was when he had that sort of little ooh I fell at, at the beginning, and you really actually had to be having your second screen with the timing and scoring up and be be paying attention to actually see him being so consistent lap after lap, because he was almost in a race of his own because he was in that hinterland as, as best of the rest, but he was so much better than everyone else that he wasn't in a battle so he just wasn't being shown on the screen so if if you were just consuming this race passively as, as as a casual fan that that great performance might have passed you by which is a tragedy because that that he should rank that as, as one of his one of the best performance of his performances of his career really it's interesting that little midfield pack because basically whoever's finishing at the front of it in what is normally seventh place or could be sixth or fifth depending on retirements is generally doing a good job the thing i like about science and it? it's been touched on there is i always look at drivers Thing what I call executing races, which is not just about being quick, but it's about being quick throughout, not making mistakes, what happened at the start, allowing. Just being consistent and able just to elevate yourself ahead of those behind you. And he was a very, very clear seventh. There was a big gap back to the rest of the, the point scorer. So that's, that's really positive for, for signs. And his future is going to be very interesting because if he keeps this up, then people are going to be seriously looking at him. And he's had three years at Toro Rosso, so it's kind of getting to the point where Red Bull wise, either he needs to be into into the Red Bull A team. I can I can only really see him staying with Toro Rosso if he's absolutely got a cast iron guarantee that he'll step up to the A team down the line, which I I doubt he's going to get with Ricardo and Verstappen there for the near future. So that, that, what do we think for for science? He does look like a driver now who has got a top team future. He's doing absolutely everything that he can to position and put himself in the best position, and when the seat does come up, um, he's in a good position to take it. The trouble is, like you said, there isn't there's, there are no gaps for him or no clear gaps of where he's going to slot in. So he's just doing what he can do on the track, and I think that's that's you know that's the best that you can do. Yeah, there, there's there's talk that he is on the Williams radar. He was on he was on the Williams radar when they were looking at replacing Bottas, and there was a phone call, and it was suggested that no, they would not be interested in letting him go. So that's logical. There'll be a, certainly be well, surely there'll be a seat at Williams next year because I can't imagine they'll keep Massa. Yeah, Massa has. Um 
after a sort of moderately impressive start um he was he was a little bit woeful during the race on sunday wasn't he and um obviously you know lance lance is locked in that and hopefully will will come better i think he he will he was very unlucky to get taken out right at the start there what 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 you have to think about with williams is are, are they going to be able to offer carlos a competitive platform i suppose they will be able to do something once Paddy Lowe's got his feet under the table. The question is whether he'll be able to execute enough of a change in the short term because you know, they'll already be laying down the concept of next year's car and they seem to have created a car that follows the same mechanical themes and the aerodynamic themes as seasons past and has all the same virtues and vices. Yeah, I think Williams is very much a team that's at that level, isn't it? It's a good decently run team that will do a good job but it's not going to be necessarily a team that's going to be launching you to to race wins so but but it is quite interesting I think there's scope for things moving around in the driver market next year there's all sorts of questions over will Raikkonen stay at Ferrari the perennial question comes back Bottas Mercedes future there's a seat at Williams what's Alonso going to do it's a little bit early for this now, but I think in a few months' time, there's going to be some really interesting scenarios being being talked about with, with some of these guys. And it's going to be down to people like Science to keep delivering, so they're in the forefront of people's minds. McLaren might have a vacancy, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> would, would you want to go there right now? Well, it's, it's an interesting place uh, at the moment. Obviously, Alonso had his, uh, had his usual... Good effort. Amazingly, he's been uh, he's running the points for eighty four percent of the laps he's completed this year, and he does enjoy reminding people of that, doesn't he? Well, yes. Um, looking back over the weekend, he described the qualifying performance as a divine present, presumably from himself to, to McLaren. <laughs> I think I think that was the uh, the undertone, and he described his race as incredible. And and he is getting everything he can out of that out of that McLaren Honda package. There's no question about that. He doesn't need a press officer basically because he does all his own PR. He does seem to be talking himself up a lot. It's something he's very good at doing, isn't it? Talking himself up, saying exactly. good things about yeah. him, promoting but himself. But he talks himself well. up and he talks himself out as well. So, you know, how, how many good situations has he fallen out of? He's, when, when he looks back, when he sits by the fireside with a glass of cognac or whatever down, down the line and a cigar and looks back at his career, he, he will rue a lot of occasions where he's he's found himself at the in the wrong place at the wrong time because of slight chippiness and intransigence and falling out with teams that's why he's ended up at mclaren pretty much and to be fair they they, i I think they're flattered by his performance so they they won't be in a crashing hurry to get rid of him certainly certainly they they won't they they won't view the sight of him waltzing out the door Uh, it won't be as welcome as it was at the end of 2007 when they absolutely hated him but you know he 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 is over delivering in that car at the moment for sure Obviously, mentioning this midfield scrap that Alonso was in, he reckons he probably could have hung on for, for a point or two in that race. We had Kevin Magnussen back in the points, I think the first time since Singapore last year. That's his first points finish for Haas. You know, very decent race performance. Finished eighth. Good to see Haas confirming their speed. And also good for Magnussen, who's an interesting driver, who's obviously now in his third third different team. I know, Lawrence, you wrote a piece earlier this year about how important it is for him to kind of really prove that he's here i think we all we all know magnuson's got ability but the fact he's been through mclaren and then renault and had to move again means that there's this need for him to achieve some equilibrium and just say right this is my home now for the next few years i'm going to show that i can do it week in week out he's certainly got the ability definitely i mean second chances are, are, are very rare in f1 
and he's got a third chance really at Haas uh, and it's a different kind of outfit and much smaller so if he if he can't make it work here and he couldn't make it work at a manufacturer you know who is going to want to take him kind of beyond this year so like you said it was a very tidy drive um, I know Gunter Steiner said before the start of the season that he expected Kevin to match Roman, and to be honest, it, it, that's what Roman probably needed to take that next step because he got he probably got quite comfortable last year. He you know he's comfortably beating Esteban, uh, so he probably needs that push, and that, that should hopefully drag that team forward. Funny, isn't it, to think about drivers getting into a comfort zone when they easily beat a teammate? But that that does seem to be the case. And Kevin is a you know he's he's, he's quite a funny fish, really, isn't he? Because he uh, there's there's this perception that he doesn't really try hard enough. And I think that's because he is very laid back in his demeanour. And he's, he seems to be one of those people that, because he, he doesn't shout and strop and throw his toys out the pram when things go wrong, people sometimes mistake that for not taking it seriously enough and not wanting it enough. Whereas basically he's just being und- undemonstrative and being sort of, he's got that Scandinavian mask of froideur. I think though to complement that, you have also got the fact that in several of those teams, and in fact in his junior career, there people who've worked with him have said there is sometimes a little bit of a degree of inattentiveness and maybe a not that drive to always constantly improve. It's kind of that feeling that you get to one level with something, and then him not pushing on to to get to that next level. But that that's a, sometimes an experience thing as well. As you build that life experience, hopefully he, sh- he should be able to get on top of that. There's that story about his dad when he, when his dad was driving for Jackie Stewart and Rubens Barrichello was his teammate that uh, Sir Jackie uh, eventually, in, in, a, in a bid to uh, close the gap between them because Rubens was showing Jan Magnussen the way, they, they actually uh, sh- showed Jan into a... Uh, into the motorhome, sat him in front of a computer, said, look, here's here's Ruben's telemetry traces. Here's your telemetry traces. Now, read and observe and learn. See where he's faster than you, etc. So Jackie walks down the steps out of the motorhome. Here's this sort of click, 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 click of, of a mouse. Think, oh, yeah, he's, he's, he's concentrating. And it's click, click, click on the mouse. Click, click, click. Comes back 10 minutes later and still click, click, click going on. Finds he's playing Minesweeper. <laughs> Yeah, that's. Uh, I don't think we put Kevin into that into quite that bracket. No, he's, he's not quite like that. If Magnussen keeps delivering at that level, I don't think there'll be question marks. We know there's a driver in there, so hopefully he'll keep delivering. That'd be good news for Haas, good news for him, good news for Formula One to have a driver of that of that ability. And he will have to, given how congested that midfield is, because the guys who are going to be finishing seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth are going to have their work cut out because it's going to be very small margins that make the difference between being eighth and being twelfth. Looking back to the build-up of the race, obviously on Friday we saw a lot of disruptions with a helicopter not able to fly the medical helicopter. No, it could fly, but not being able to land at the hospital in Shanghai, 38 kilometres away. There is obviously the need to be able to get people out in the case of neurological injuries in particular, if they need treatment. So designated hospital, and if it couldn't land, then you couldn't run. FP1, there were two red flag periods, there wasn't that much running. FP2 was lost completely. Obviously there was a little bit of criticism about that, but I think... This is just fairly sensible, isn't it? I think the, fa- the fact is, if there had been an accident, the same people who are complaining probably about the fact that there was no action would be complaining, or there would be a concern about why wasn't this, you know, procedure looked into? Why, why can't the medical helicopter uh, land at the hospital? You should have, you know, should have known that, and we should have taken off. But I think the wider problem is pollution's always been a problem in China. So, so surely by going to China in the first place, you know that that's going that could be potentially an issue, and if you know that's going to be an issue, then sort the 
uh, sort the road access out beforehand before you even get there? Well, the fact there was quite quickly a solution put in place. Obviously, the FIA arranged for a police escort on the roads if it was required, which they didn't have on Friday. And they also, in time for the race day, equipped a, a close-by hospital with neurological equipment and staff to, well, with equipment to treat neurological injuries, neurological traumas, which was in the, the Rujin, which is probably the wrong pronunciation, hospital. That's actually in Jading because we call it the Shanghai circuit. It is close to Shanghai, but it's just sort of to the northwest of the city. So when you're there, when we stay there for the Chinese Grand Prix, you often don't feel like you're in Shanghai because you're a bit further out. Some people stay downtown. Quite often we end up staying quite close to the circuit. So that hospital was only five kilometres away. So that seemed to be quite an elegant solution. You could say that probably, as you said, Lawrence, because visibility can be a problem there. Low cloud on top of the smog, there's a lot of industrial uh, industrial activity in that area. And indeed, when you get to Shanghai and you're around for a bit, it's not long before you feel your kind of chest just... Yeah, you get the China cough, don't you? Exactly, yes. So maybe that would have been a sensible contingency to have in place anyway. What we do need to look at it as is from a point of view of of sensible contingencies because this is one of those issues where um, out come the armchair experts and and you do read a lot of quite uninformed or misinformed opinions being spouted for instance people saying why why can't the on-site medical facility be equipped to deal with these sort of injuries and realistically i think there there are cost implications uh to doing such thing i'm i'm sure you there's could. also quite a high level of specialization yeah, yeah both in terms of the skill set and the training and the equipment yeah it's, it's people who've watched a few too many episodes of vr or holby city or whatnot and uh, think that any hospital can do anything well um, i imagine in a scenario where in your time trial you came off your bike and suffered a serious head injury you wouldn't be anticipating the st john's ambulance people to uh, <laughs> no, to, to do to do the serious I'll, leg work yeah when, when, he, when he breaks out breaks out the hand drill and says i'm afraid we're just we're just gonna have to alleviate the pressure on your skull hold on a second <laughs> i need a three pin plug to get this thing <laughs> yeah it's, it's, it's not like that and and I, I think it, it does the FIA a disservice because they do put on a very high standard of medical backup. And uh, interestingly, uh, three or four years ago, I uh, did a feature for F1 Racing about the medical car and its occupants and, and the general backup in Shanghai. So I went and met Dr. Ian Roberts, who is a very highly qualified anaesthetist uh, who, who rides in the medical car he he uh, will have a local doctor with him in that medical car and we, we went in to look at the medical facilities which was spick and span and unused and it's and he explained to me that the the the, the purpose of this facility is to stabilize a driver so when the medical car reaches the scene of an accident it is dr robert's task to establish the nature of the industry industry the nature of the injury yeah working out the nature of the industry that'll be a, <laughs> let's just work out what exactly what exactly industry am i in here <laughs> crushed by the wheels of industry but that's heaven 17 and not to power at all uh he it's his job to work out the nature of the injury and then stabilize the driver such that they can be transported to the medical facility where they can be properly stabilized for transport to uh, a hospital where there's an emergency room where all the intensive care that is necessary can be provided because it's in the nature of a, of a major injury where you require intensive care. You could be in there for days and, and you do not want to be putting a driver into an induced coma in a race circuit in the middle of nowhere. Uh, so the people who think that you should just 
you know, bus in some medics and get George Clooney to head them up for a Grand Prix weekend, they are living in La La Land. I think it is very, very easy to be flippant about these sorts of things and just say, oh, well, why wasn't it done? But of course, not all, but I imagine some of the people criticising that will be the same people if something goes wrong in that sort of scenario, saying, well, why was this allowed to happen? It's very easy to, to say that. And I think that with the exception of maybe the FIA for the future should look at equipping that local hospital in the same way and especially given the roads in China making sure there is capacity for a for a police escort I think in terms of the decision making process it was it was very sensible and it was great to see incidentally Lewis Hamilton crossing the start finish straight with a few members of the Mercedes team signing caps throwing them into the crowd giving them a little bit of of entertainment I think it was good to see uh, see that that effort being put in by by him at a time when various other drivers weren't doing that not necessarily I think because they didn't want to probably they just didn't think of it no, well, uh, that that in itself is a problem, isn't it? That uh, drivers don't think about. That, that. We we often do, we we describe that status of being lost in F one, don't we? That uh, some people are just so in, in the bubble they don't realise that they they don't really have much perspective on the outside world. Uh, it, it was a very good move by Lewis, and he's shaping up to be a great ambassador for the sport. It would be good if more people did that rather than having to be told to. FIA mandated. Perhaps, perhaps the FIA could um, start fining drivers for not doing that instead of not turning up for the national anthems <laughs> on time. Well, there's another story. Yeah, Ricardo and Perez getting uh, getting reprimands for for being late to that. I can understand why they have to be. Sometimes herding F1 drivers can be like herding cats, can't it? So I can understand why they they take that sort of procedural thing seriously. Although just have someone rattling a treat packet at the head of the queue. <laughs> I think that's pretty pretty much the level of the incentive. Now we also had a little bit of talk this weekend about the future shape of the Grand Prix calendar. The Malaysian Grand Prix at Sepang is being dropped. Lawrence, so you've cover the Malaysian Grand Prix I think we've all we've all been out there quite a few times is that a big loss for F1 it feels still to me like a new race but it's been there almost two decades now so this actually is an established race being lost it's crazy isn't it isn't 1999 was the first Malaysian Grand Prix yeah first year yeah time's flown by since then uh the trouble for Malaysia is that they've got Singapore right next door and it puts on such a great race that that is if you want to go to Asia for a race you're probably going to pick Singapore over Malaysia even though Malaysia I know the tickets are so much cheaper than going to Singapore. It's a shame, but if this means we're opening the doors and perhaps let other circuits that have dropped off the calendar, uh, the French Grand Prix returning next year, I think there's potentially talk of the German Grand Prix returning as well. Um, it's possibly not such a bad thing, and who knows? They might just go away, think about it, try and work out a better scenario of how they want to play it, make the project work a bit better, and we might even get to the stage where we can rotate Grand Prix. So the Malaysian Grand Prix could come back every other year. Wouldn't a Kuala Lumpur Patronas-funded street race going past the Twin Towers be absolutely stunning? Obviously, there has been a street race recently in, in Kuala Lumpur for a much lower level, but that shows it's possible. So maybe Patronas, which is a big sponsor of Mercedes, might be thinking about doing something of that nature. And that, that maybe could compete to an extent with Singapore. Minute that, send it to uh, Messrs Bratches, Braun and Carey and get them to take it up. Uh, should we be mentioning that the, uh, I think the, the F1 survey is still up. I think we, if, if, if you're listening to this just after this has been um, uploaded to the internet, there may still be time to fill out the uh, global fan survey at motorsport.com. Yeah, f1survey.motorsport.com is the place to go for that, for you to have your have your voice heard. It's been open for a few weeks, but you might just be able to squeeze in your opinion and 
the results of that will be presented rotate to the Grand Prix. But there you go. Rotating Grand Prix. We have seen a few scenarios like that. We saw Hockenheim and Nürburgring rotating their slots for a bit. Admittedly, that was through financial expediency, although that would probably be the same for rotating races in the future because Hockenheim had a deal with the local government where the losses of the races were, were covered by the local government. That couldn't happen for every year. Nürburgring obviously had its own separate problems. It's always worth remembering that region of Germany is fairly poor. There's not a lot of money to go around. So Nürburgring couldn't afford to keep staging the race and Hockenheim couldn't go up to every every year at that stage. So maybe there's some financial expediency that, that could be at play across the board there. And it would be no bad thing to have that variety because it does get a little bit predictable sometimes, the order of the Grand Prix. That said, Malaysia has moved to the back end of the season this year, which is where it started, obviously, but it's been early in the year for quite a long time. It's kind of the end of an era, isn't it? Because Malaysia was the first of the new generation of Far Eastern Grand Prix and Bernie true, Eccleston's yeah. Move East, the the big Tilkadromes, and that, that set everything in motion uh, over the past sort of 17, 18 years. And it started the cascade of races like Korea, which we still enjoy going to. Yeah, we, do, we love going to Korea, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> but that that does doesn't that show how out of shape and distorted the Formula One commercial model is? And and I, I don't want to step into the shoes of the absent Dieter Renkin here and complain about the uh, commercial settlement, but it, it shows what uh, challenge Formula One's new owners have of unpicking what is a really really distorted economic model, where the because the previous owners took on heavy leverage to buy it and then shook out whatever they could from it to and, and burdened it with debt it was very cash hungry so you would you would go to these countries that would offer you uh pots and pots of money for the privilege of hosting a grand prix you'd squeeze the existing races for more to the point where they were squeaking and and, and that propped up the whole enterprise and now the the challenge for liberty media is to find some way of putting it on a proper keel where it's not so cash hungry while also taking a profit because that's what they do. Well, looking a little bit more at the short term, there's not long to wait for the third round of the Vettel versus Hamilton battle with free practice for the Bahrain Grand Prix kicking off on Friday. The renamed Formula 2 Championship also gets going in Bahrain. We will have a special edition of the Autosport podcast later in the week to look at the ramifications of the F2 name returning and preview the championship formerly known as GP2 as well as having a look at the upcoming European F3 and GP3 seasons. Thanks to Stuart Codling and Lawrence Barreto for joining me, Ed Straw, for this look back at the Chinese Grand Prix. Keep an eye on autosport.com for all the latest news and features from F1 and the whole of world of motorsport. And don't forget to pick up a copy of Autosport magazine out every Thursday and F1 Racing out monthly. And if you enjoy our podcast, please subscribe via iTunes or any of the other usual podcast emporiums for more of the same on a regular basis. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music.
the, the mega chunky is, is what my bicycle travels in when abroad. Oh, so it's all those big ago. hard cases with the... Yeah, that looks like the sort of thing you wheel a child round on, but uh, it... Uh, it's a pain to transport, as we found out when we went to Monaco. It was two years ago in Monaco, wasn't <laughs> yeah. it? Yeah, it, it, was, um, it was pretty epic fitting it into the back of the car. Yeah. I seem to remember I had to, le- I, I had to f- fold myself over you the were, seat. I'm pretty sure you were squeezed between it, kind of like that. <laughs> I was facing backwards in the car. <laughs> <laughs> is uh, is is Mega Trunky oh, the official name for it, or is that your pet name? I, I think we described it as the Mega Trunky because sometimes sounds sometimes quite affectionate. Children children in in airports look at it as if it's kind of like the the the, tr- the, the trunky they want when they grow up. Uh, What's a trunky? Have you not? Did you not see that episode of uh, Dragon's <laughs> Den? I'm afraid where the not. trunky. Oh, right. the the trunky is a device first piloted on television's Dragon's Den, where the inventor uh, had come up with this great idea of a suitcase for kids that um, basically is on wheels and you pull it. But the idea is that when when the child, as inevitably children do in airports, lose their temper and get fed up uh, with with pulling their suitcase around. They can sit on it and ride round on it. Ah, uh, okay. I think I may have seen something in this. Now, I imagine that you sound very sceptical about this, and I imagine that if you were one of the dragons on Dragon's Den, you'd be uh, more in the Duncan Bannatyne mold. You know, I don't like you, don't like it, don't like it. Yeah, for that reason, I'm out. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.